In every generation, there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Welcome to Conversations with Dead People, a post-mortem podcast on the works of Joss Whedon. My name's Paul, I'm your host, and I'm typically joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia as we make our way through the critically acclaimed series Buffy the Vampire Slayer and its spin-off series Angel. Elizabeth Rambo, friend, author, mistress of the dark, you're one of my prized frequent guests and need no introduction at this point, so welcome back. Mistress of the dark, eh? Yes. <laughs> Well, I'm glad to be back. Thanks for inviting me. You, you, as I've said before, you wrote the book literally on the dark seasons of uh, Buffy the Vampire well, Slayer. I, I co-wrote the book with James yes. South. Yes. Yes. So. So he's also a mistress of the dark. I'm sure he'll be flattered to hear that. <laughs> and so will Lynn. Yes. Um. So how are you doing? Um. Pretty well. Uh, read sort of like Alice in Wonderland running as fast as I can to stay in the same place <laughs> with uh, school, but I'm yes. happy to take a moment and do this podcast with you because these are two of my favorite episodes and uh, get it done is not necessarily one of my favorites, but it's actually pretty good. Um, and an important episode <laughs> in season seven. So, yeah. So I, uh, as I was, as I was telling you off mic before we started recording, um, I feel like I have a lot to say about at least one of these episodes. And surprisingly, it's not Lies My Parents Told Me, which is an absolutely fantastic episode, one of my favorites. But for whatever reason, I just didn't take a lot of notes about that one. I mean, what is there to say? I love Spike. Um, so it'll be interesting to find out how our how our note-taking compares it on will. these episodes. But um yeah, so tonight we're going to be talking about uh, episodes 715, Get It Done, 716, Storyteller, and 717, Lies My Parents Told Me. Um, but before we do that, let me drop the dreaded spoiler warning here. Uh, Conversations with Dead People is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole, which means we are going to spoil things, lots and lots of things. So I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the Series all the way through at least once, press pause, go do that. Uh, you can come back to us whenever you're ready. So with all the warnings and caveats out of the way, Elizabeth, if you're ready, let's go to work. Let's go. All right. So we're going to start off with uh, with your favorite, Get It Done. <laughs> Written right. and directed by Douglas Petrie. Uh, so tell me your thoughts on Get It Done. Well, um, as I was watching it, I thought, you know, this is uh, this episode pulls together or pulls out 
of some hat a lot of mythology about the series that things that we never knew before or that they were sort of in the background floating around but kind of solidifies a lot of things like the origins of the first layer mm-hmm. and um you know what the first evil is up to and things like that um background of robin wood mm-hmm. a lot of things are you know a lot of things are sort of start gelling in this episode it's, we really start moving towards the um the the end and the climax of the of the uh season here yeah um yeah so i actually just based on title alone i had no memory of what get it done was going to be um but as soon as it as soon as it started i realized where we were in the season and it all sort of came back to me i remembered this was the shadow caster episode right um which for whatever strengths and weaknesses this particular episode may have the i, I personally think that the uh, the shadow caster scene, the, like the shadow puppet scene, is pretty damn great. Yes, um, it's one of it's one of the more visually just. I mean, it, it's not the grandest in terms of the special effects the show has ever attempted, but it pulls these effects off better than it does many effects, and it's mm-hmm. just it's just it does what it needs to do and it's very uh, effective at it. Um, I really love it. I, I kind of wish that that element of this episode could have gone on longer. I just liked it. Yeah, it, it really was effective and, uh, and something that we hadn't seen them do before. Right. Uh, like one of my very favorite things in fiction is world building. Um, I mean, obviously I'm drawn to, interesting fascinating flawed or whatever characters but uh you know no matter what i'm watching no matter how lame or memorable the characters may be if the if the fiction is telling some interesting original world building like if it's setting a stage i'm Mm -hmm. i'm just i'm in on that so yeah Yeah. i really love this stuff yeah it's it was really good and i also like seeing Dawn. Uh, Dawn starts finding things to do here in season seven. Yes. Um, and this is one of her her key scenes where she she knows what to do with the book. She knows what the puppets are. You know, she has she has a role to play here. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was great. I adore Dawn, and I, I thought it was great that in a scene that had Anya, who has like eleven hundred years of of demon history and knowledge to call upon and Willow who's studied this kind of stuff. Um, I loved that it was Dawn who actually knew what these things were. Yeah. Um, that's just cool. Like yeah, that's true. Uh, in fact, I would say that, um, in perhaps <laughs> Dawn has possibly gotten the best casual, barely on camera character development of any of the characters of any of the characters in this cluttered. And I'm just going to go ahead and say clumsy season. Um, She, she hasn't gotten as much screen time as a lot of the other characters, but what she's gotten has really developed the character uh, Mm -hmm. in a great way. So. Yeah. Yeah. um, I, that's something I wrote about in uh, an essay I wrote about season seven, that this is, this is the one where she 
Dawn really goes through her own growth process. She was really on, you know, we saw her as, <laughs> in uh, uh, Storyteller. We have uh, Andrew sort of introducing her like, Dawn used to be a key. I don't know what that means. And Dawn doesn't either. So that's why she's such a pill in <laughs> season in season six. I think is a lot of reason why she's so she's you know she's all about screaming. She's a kleptomaniac, whatever. But in season seven, she really starts finding who she is. Yeah, she's not potential, but she does have something she can do. Yeah, I was initially disappointed that the season that the writers decided in this season to set up the possibility that she would be a potential and then have that not be the case. Mm -hmm. But that did allow for um, probably Xander's finest moment. It wasn't in these episodes. So, I mean, we're all over the place, but it did give Xander his finest moment when he got to talk to her about being, you know, the one on the outside. Mm -hmm. Um, And it has allowed for her to follow this, this alternate path of development, which I also like, I feel like, even though I was disappointed she didn't get to be a potential, and I kind of thought, well, that doesn't really make sense. Why wouldn't she be? A, she of all people, why wouldn't she of be course. a potential? Um, but I think if they had gone that route, it probably, I, I probably would have been disappointing. And I, I appreciate that the the way that they did decide to go with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this very episode, I love the fact that um, when the exchange student <laughs> shows up. Um, <laughs> that line made me laugh. That uh, that Kennedy and Dawn both made pretty, I mean, I'll just call them valiant attempts <laughs> at attacking mm-hmm. uh, the the exchange student demon. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, Xander got immediately thrown out of the picture. Willow steps up and just gets smacked right. immediately, um, which basically leaves... Uh, Kennedy and Dawn, and they both arm themselves and go in swinging. And, and I mean, they didn't do much more than the others did, but it was, I liked seeing them go for it. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. What else? Oh, I was, and I'm trying to think in the scene where uh, Willow draws on Kennedy's power mm-hmm. to make the portal she draws on somebody else's power too. It's it's uh, Anya. Is it Anya? It's Anya, which, yeah. as far as I know, never gets referenced. No, it doesn't. Which is interesting. I thought it. I thought it could be Dawn, but Dawn got blasted back and was yeah. still sort of laying on the floor when that when that happened. So, but it makes sense that it would be Anya, since she's even though she's human, she still probably has some of that residual power or something. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. She is human. She did officially give up being a vengeance demon again. Right. Okay. Um, well, let's go. Let's go back to the beginning of the episode because I love the uh, the cold open mm-hmm. with uh, Anya and Spike walking down the alley, and Anya <laughs> desperately trying to hit on Spike. Right. It's really uh, funny, and Spike's just not interested. Yeah, I mean, I really love the will they, they absolutely, definitely will not scene that yeah. they have. Um, and of course, you've got the the amazing line of Spike's like, you're you're like a dog with a bone. Anya says, so what? And he's like, it's my bone. <laughs> <laughs> Good 
stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of double entendres in these episodes, all of them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Andrew gets a great line. Uh, I don't think... Yeah, I don't think there was much with Andrew in this episode. Um, most of what we got was the uh, where the hell have you been? This funnel cake is kicking my ass scene. Yeah. Oh, Andrew's great line in this is where Buffy says he's a hostage. And Andrew says, <laughs> I like to think of myself more as a guestage. Yes, that's great. Um, yeah, man, they 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 did it. I forgot how well they did it. I've been I've been hemming and hawing. Uh, in recent episodes about whether I would ever be able to forgive Andrew for being the one who killed my beloved Jonathan. And um, I mean, it's still rough, but I, I think we've finally gotten there with these three episodes. Certainly. I mean, they, yeah, they bring me to a place where, where I'm willing. definitely storyteller. Yes. Really yeah. Does it, I think. Yeah. Um, so I, <laughs> I would say that, um, well, first I want to give, a tiny little bit of praise to the first, just, mm-hmm. just the tiniest bit. Um, because finally the first I've been complaining about the first, this whole season where it just simply does not live up to its potential. Ha ha. There's that word. Uh-huh. Um, I literally, the show has ruined that word. I can't say it anymore without having to acknowledge it. But anyways, the the writers this season has been they've been telling us how dangerous and powerful the first is and and when you stop and think about what its abilities and limitations are, there's so much stuff that the first could be doing and it just isn't. It's it really is the MacGuffin in the background and very rarely does it step uh like onto center stage and when it does yeah. it's usually not much to write home about. Um, but in this episode, it actually did something effective mm-hmm. by convincing Chloe to kill herself, mm-hmm. um, which was a a great scene. I, I it was some some fun Dawn and Buffy bits leading right up to that scene. I loved uh, Michelle Trachtenberg performance um, as she was tricking Buffy and she kept saying, Oh yeah, I do have a plan. It's called flunking or <laughs> whatever. Oh yeah. She's like, I'm yeah, it's just so kidding. lighthearted there. And then the shock. Yeah. So. And then they open the door and yeah. it all changes. But so I just wanted to acknowledge as I have been wont to complain about the first, and I'm sure I will continue to, but in this episode, at least I want to give credit where credit is due. It, it did something effective. So yeah, good on you first. Um, and I was going to say that everything up to the point when Buffy returns from burying Chloe, I actually quite enjoy. Like the the episode up to that point, I was like, this is a really good episode. Mm-hmm. And then the speechifying kicks in. Yeah. That... <laughs> so I obviously want to know, I can't remember if you and I have spoken about the, the speechifying TM mm-hmm. of this season or not, but I've certainly spilled some words about it. Um, I've done my own speechifying about the speechifying. Yeah. Um, but I will just say right up front, it is impossible to overstate how much I dislike the entire general Buffy thing. <laughs> it's, it's definitely a weak point of this season. Um, 
and I, you know, I don't know. It's certainly something that starts uh, being brought forward with this episode and is even is re-emphasized in uh, the next episode that Buffy's speeches aren't making a difference. You know, she's talking at people and also in the next episode too, she's talking, but um, she's, it's not doing anything. You know, so she has, she's trying to figure out in these three episodes, Buffy's trying to figure out in different ways. What do I have to do? Mm-hmm. You know, she's got these potentials, but training them is, you know, the, what's the message she gets from the, from the first slayer in her dream it's not enough. Yeah. So she keeps on talking, but it does, it's not changing anything. Um, and Andrew's in his, you know, when he's making his little documentary, these speeches of hers are pretty boring. <laughs> yes. I did appreciate that. Yeah. You know, so even the, the show itself is conscious, like, okay, you know, this isn't working, but what we don't know what to do yet. It's almost like they got into this pattern. But they weren't, sure how to make it move forward yeah so the general buffy and the speechifying stuff has been building up for a few episodes prior to these three uh Mm -hmm. and i have not been a fan i've been increasing i've i was reminded how i never was a fan and how it's consistently tainted my faint memories of season seven all these years um but these three episodes particularly uh lies my parents told me and we'll i'll get into details when we start discussing that episode but these three episodes might possibly we'll see how the rest of the season goes for me but they might possibly get me over my hatred of the speechifying stuff maybe and well it would i could see why because well one there's some self-consciousness there's some self-awareness yeah that the speeches aren't doing it yeah and so that helps, I think. Um, you know, so Buffy's aware with the first Slayer appearing to her. And so she actually takes some action. Yeah, well, so it, it literally is lies my parents told me. There's a there's an element of that episode that makes me, like I said, we'll see if this holds over the rest of the season going forward. But mm-hmm. at the moment, that episode made me kind of stop and reconsider and recontextualize what's going on. And I might be willing to forgive it all. But at the moment, the episode that we're in right now, uh, Get It Done, we've got the we've got a really ugly scene, a scene that I really do not enjoy at all in the context of this episode. And it's when she comes back from burying Chloe and she immediately tries to rally the troops in a in a strange, ugly way by yeah, saying that Chloe it's was very done. harsh. Yeah, so I I think it's in this moment. My notes involve how interesting it is that General. I'm just going to keep saying General Buffy. General sure. Buffy is using basically the same tactics as the first here Mm -hmm. she's cutting down everyone's confidence she's telling them how pathetic they are um which is basically what the first did to chloe to get her so the question Mm -hmm. becomes the question becomes uh how (laughs) what's the morality of using that particular method of leadership and then there and then it's followed up by 
Xander again having a great moment saying, yes, obviously you are our leader, but you haven't been leading. Like he even says, she's like, you need to start doing things or, or why are you just sitting around waiting to do stuff? And Xander's mm-hmm. like, well, cause that's kind of what you told us to do. Yeah. Um, and he's like, you're not, you're not just our leader. Let's not forget that you're also, you know, we're also friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the like he, he calls out like she fancies herself a leader or she is trying to be a leader, but you know, Xander rightly points out, where's the leadership. You're not like actually giving us anything to do. Right. Um, well, yeah, that's to me, that's the, that's, I don't know if I can say redeems, but the, the sort of self-awareness of that scene is yes, it starts out as another haranguing speech from her. But they, not just uh, Xander, but others, I mean, Anya, Spike, they all um, speak back and say, mm-hmm. well, look, what about you? What are you doing? Right. So when you say it's a self-awareness or whatever, are you referring to the show or to the character of Buffy? Because I, I no, per- I'm referring to the show. Okay. Okay. Yes. Because the show gives those, those um, speeches to the other characters who right. say to back to Buffy, don't just talk at us look at yourself right right no i totally agree and that's why yeah that's one of the reasons why i think this trio of of episodes works as well as it does because it feels like i i often <laughs> i often get grouchy when i feel like the show is is tacitly endorsing buffy's worst behaviors uh-huh and I suppose you could look at some of the scenes in, in at least a couple of these episodes and say the show seems to be doing it, but you, you nailed it there. The fact, I think the show, meaning the writers are now openly acknowledging that, you know, what Buffy's doing is not the right thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So. Yeah. And she hasn't quite gotten there herself yet, but she's moving in that direction because, when they say to her, if you're our leader, why aren't you leading? And right, so that's right. when she says, okay, let's open up the emergency kit. Right. Um, yeah. And I'll actually, take, I'll take action. Uh, actually like Buffy's big triumphant moment. Well, I mean, we can debate how triumphant it is, but Buffy's sort of big uh, triumphant moment at the end is her choosing to favor her humanity over the burst, the, the, the boost of power. Yeah that she would potentially get from letting in more darkness. Um, yet the general Buffy persona that the season has been cultivating is in many respects, the most inhuman Buffy has ever been. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just interesting. Like I think perhaps on my first viewing of this season way back in the day, I wasn't catching as much of the, the uh, mixed messages here, or or perhaps I was catching them, but I just complained that they were mixed messages, I guess. I didn't yeah. realize that the show was actually setting this up intentionally. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's definitely being set up um, intentionally um, for that final revelation or epiphany that Buffy has that it doesn't have to be her alone. Mm-hmm. And this is something that she's she hasn't quite got it yet, but she's she's starting to get 
she's starting to get it. Right. Um, I want to, I want to give props to Spike for, mm -hmm. for his growth that, uh, as demonstrated by him, not jumping across the table and immediately killing Kennedy when, <laughs> when she dismisses all of his efforts by saying, Hey, we were trained. What are you doing? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. He just was like, she says, you know, it kicked your ass. And he was like, it certainly did. And he walks out. Um, cause yeah. I, I have been, I never disliked Kennedy, but on this rewatch, I'm like, Kennedy's fine. Like I, I, I actually kind of like her character. Um, but in that moment I was like, Oh, you did not. <laughs> you did. She's, <laughs> she's also the one who's enjoying is she's training the, the potentials. You know, she enjoys being the, the drill sergeant right. and calling Chloe maggot and things like that. So she's, she's getting into it a little bit much. Right. So. Well, and, um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if this tracks throughout the rest of the season, but I, hopefully I feel like maybe that was nipped in the bud when Chloe died and the first said, Oh yeah. Remember when you called her maggot? She heard that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm sure that was, I'm sure that got through to her. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So she has that side to her, but I think she realized she, that's a wake up call for sure. Right. Um, okay. Here's my question about this episode. Okay. Um, so Robin Wood comes to Buffy's house. He wants to see the operation and so forth. And he wants to meet the vampire. Right. Do you think he knows that Spike is his mother's killer at this point, or does he only suspect it? No, he knows because in the, was it the very previous episode? One of the episodes leading up to this, it might've been the, the one immediately before uh, the first appeared to him as uh, it was first date. So whichever, <laughs> whenever that was the so first appears already, to him. He's already been visited by the first. Yeah. yeah. The, the first shows up as his mother and says, uh, you know, who killed me? You've been working with him <laughs> or whatever. And he's like, Spike. Okay. Cause I made such a big deal out of uh, why Wood looked in the rearview mirror of his car at Spike in the back seat and uh, didn't <laughs> didn't register. That was weird. And it wasn't until uh, Spike went into vamp face and Robin was like, "Oh, he's a vampire." It's <laughs> like, yeah. "Come on, man, wake up." Um, I I think I felt like he wasn't a hundred percent sure until he's watch the spike walk by him wearing his mother's coat. Right. Well, that might be, that might've been the confirmation he needed. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I guess we, we shouldn't assume that he just immediately took the first words to heart because he's mm -hmm. seen like Buffy and the others have been telling him that, you know, the first is manipulative and it lies or whatever. So, yeah, I, you're you're probably right. It isn't until he actually says, "Nice coat. Where'd you get it?" And Spike says, "New York." That, and he's like, "Yep, there it is." Yeah, he's a hundred percent sure after that. I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I want to ask you, because I have some thoughts. Okay. But I want to ask you uh, how you felt about the end of the episode. Um. So Buffy's. Okay, now I'm. My notes here are a little sketchy. The end of the episode is. Um, well, specifically, 
Yeah, specifically, like she goes, she jumps through the portal, and so she see she finds the shadow men, right? And uh, they offer to they tell her how they created the first Slayer, and they, I right. would I would say they offer to give her more demonic power for the fight. Right. The upcoming she rejects fight. that, but they basically just try to force it on her, and she rejects it. Um, and so, last thing they do is they give her a vision of what's really coming. Uh, yeah. which makes her realize, you know, I mean, if they were effective power managers, they would have done that first. <laughs> they would have said, Hey, here's what's coming. You want some more power? But yeah, um, I mean, there, you know, she said from the start that she didn't want more power that she wants. She wanted wisdom. She wanted knowledge. Right. Right. She didn't go there for power. Yeah. But still, uh, so they give her the vision and she sees what's coming. And obviously at that point she questions and I think she continues to question whether or not she made the right decision right. by, you know, being so high and mighty about her humanity and not accepting the extra power. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah. So how did you feel about all that? Um, that is interesting, but she's always rejected the idea. She's been told in the past several times that, her power comes from darkness mm-hmm. and she's, she's rejected that. Um, yeah. Oh, I absolutely think it's in character for Buffy. Yeah. So it definitely, it seemed very much like something that she would do. Um, she's determined to find some other way besides becoming just more and more dark powered right demon powered buffy demon powered slayer right she doesn't want to fight darkness with darkness even though that's how the slayer was created which okay so this might get into my my conflicted thoughts and feelings about what i feel like the show is doing at this point um, mm-hmm. first of all, because that kind of thing, you know, Buffy wanting to be, you know, not wanting to accept unasked for power from a bunch of men who still control the power and all like her wanting to maintain her humanity and not give in to the darkness. That's all stuff that's been explored in Buffy since the very beginning. And it feels 100% in character for her to have done that. Right. But this is another spot. This is another point where I have to look at what it feels like the show is trying to tell us. So I, I'm having some troubling or problematic thoughts in regards to the, the concept of violation, particularly this violation by magic that this episode starts to talk about. Yeah. Um, because Buffy declares, you know, the magic that the shadow men used to empower the first slayer as, she explicitly calls it a violation. Yeah. Um, no spoilers, but that's a subject that may come up again in the end, <laughs> at the end of the season. Yes, it may. More in episode 64. Stay tuned. Um, meanwhile, Kennedy feels violated. I don't remember if she uses that word. I don't think she does use the word, but clearly that's meant to, that's meant as sort of a, a mirror to what's going on with Buffy. Kennedy feels like she's been violated by Willow siphoning yes. you know, magic energy from her. And it creates, 
I mean, it quickly goes away in the next two episodes, but in this episode, at least it looks like it's creating a rift between Mm -hmm. the two. Um, But it feels, it feels like, first of all, it feels like the show wants us to sympathize with Willow here because we know how much it took for Willow to put herself in that position. We know how miserable she feels about having done it that way. Um, and, and we just know as longtime viewers that this is, that just felt like something that magic would do. I don't know. I feel like the show wants us to be on sort of Willow's from Willow's point of view here. We can be mm-hmm. sympathetic necessarily to Kennedy, but the show I feel like at least is endorsing Willow's view here. And yeah. Will and Willow is theoretically or whatever technically willow is the violator in this in this moment um i also feel like because at the end of the episode and i and i think it continues i i think this concept continues into the next couple of episodes uh that buffy regrets uh not letting herself be violated basically that she sees what's coming and uh even willow's like don't worry about it we'll figure it out we always do and buffy's like no i don't i don't Mm -hmm. i don't think so not this time and so even our main character with whom the show usually sides uh is questioning her (laughs) her being so quick to to brush off the whole violation by magic thing yeah where i'm going with this is I have very strong feelings about how the series ends, but at the moment it feels like the show is steering us towards the quote unquote violation of magic is a necessary evil to get things done. Uh-huh. Um, hmm. Well, yes and <laughs> no, because here's the thing. Um, it is necessary in this episode for Willow to do what she does. However, she doesn't want to do it. Right. Like, this is the only way she knows how at this point. Right. No, she doesn't have to. I don't think she has to draw on other people in the final episode. She knows how to do it to draw on some other forces. Well, you, you will have a better memory of this than I do. I, I remember what Willow does and I remember she goes all, you know, Gandalf the white on us, Mm -hmm. uh, in the end, but I, I don't remember how she pulls that off. I feel like the Uh, scythe has something to do with it. Maybe. Well, the scythe does have something to do with it, but she's using the scythe as a conduit or, something that she maybe she draws on the power of the side but she sends it's she sends that power into the potential right right um but i i i couldn't remember so what you're saying is that is explicitly different than her drawing energy from anya and yeah okay okay she doesn't have can it all the potentials are down in the Hellmouth fighting right uh uber vamp so right it's, so I think she that's why she's worried about doing it. It's like she knows how to this is something she knows how to do now, but she's afraid that she's gonna hurt somebody mm-hmm. and that she'll 
maybe go dark again or something. So she's at an intermediate stage where she's willing to do this, but this is what Buffy is complaining about. She says, Willow, you have this magical power, but you're not willing to use it. That's another reason why I'm so conflicted on these on this show and these three episodes right now on the one hand i really love them all three of them and i feel like they do some great things and they may recontextualize my entire opinion of the season on the other hand this is immediately following up on a couple of episodes where uh buffy was very supportive very kind and supportive too especially spike but like Mm -hmm. But like everybody, and then it immediately cuts. And I get, I get that the death of Chloe is supposed to be like, you know, a splash of cold water in her face or whatever. It unhinges her basically. Mm-hmm. I get that, but it's still a tonal shift to go from where we were last episode to this episode, where, like last episode, she told Spike, uh, "You, contrary to what uh, Giles and Robin Wood will say in a couple of episodes, Spike d- is self-aware." he does realize that he's a danger to Buffy and he tries to leave several times and she makes him stay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she says, uh, you know, he says, I need to go. And she's like, no, you, you can't go. And he's like, you've got another demon fighter now. And she's like, that's not why I'm not ready to not have you here anymore. That was very, very like needy and kind and sweet or whatever. And then in this, she just <laughs> completely about faces and uses goes the opposite direction, I guess, to try and motivate him. But what they what she does is she motivates Willow to risk going dark again, mm-hmm. and she she actually she certainly risks. And I feel like you could argue she pushes Spike to actually go dark again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, this is complex stuff, and and I I I want to be. I love shades of gray, but for some reason, when I'm talking about this show, I want to be black and white. And it's not that easy. I want to be mad at Buffy, but <laughs> I don't, I don't think I can stay there. Damn this show you, for taking me to this point. You can't stay there. Damn it. It's not right. Okay. <laughs> um, well, if they, unless you have anything else to say about this, we can move on to the next one. Um, yeah, I think we have to move on to the next one. Um, um, I think the key thing that happens here, though, is just like pe- they get it done. You know, it, I think this is sort of pulls everybody out of their rut, whatever their ruts might be, and moving forward. So, which get it done? Yeah, get it done. Okay, okay. Um, so, yeah, so we'll move on to 716 Storyteller, uh, written by the glorious Jane Espenson. It's so good. And it is a fantastic episode. Um, I I might quibble just a little bit at, again, the tonal shift. Like, the first half of it is so light and so fun, and mm-hmm. the second half of it is so not light and not fun. Um, yeah. Again, a thing Buffy famously Buffy the show famously does, but Mm -hmm. it it felt a little bit, just a little bit jarring in this, but true. What uh, you, what are your, what are your like first thoughts and 
comments um, on this? Well, I uh, it's not quite as cohesive as it could be. There's a little bit of a the mixture of the uh, documentary elements, which are just so good mm-hmm. and the parts that clearly can't be documentary is a little bit more jarring than I remember uh, the last time I watched it. Um, but it's still a great character study for Andrew. And if we're going to redeem Andrew, you know, this is, this is the episode that does it. Yeah. Agreed. So, this, this is the, um, this is the magical episode that, for the most part, lets Andrew off the hook. For me. It's it's also great. You know, I don't know why. Maybe they were thinking, well, people are hearing that this is the last se- season of Buffy. Maybe we're going to have people come in and start watching and trying to figure out what's going on. It's a great episode to sort of catch people up, but in a funny way, so that mm-hmm. even people who've been watching it for a while um, can get a kick out of it. Because Andrew's recaps of the past are hilarious. <laughs> yeah, no, they're golden. Um, yeah. Uh, the question of why the show felt it needed to have a a recap episode at this point, I don't know. I I feel like every season has one of those. Yeah. Um, maybe right about this point, but I and I haven't been paying attention. Like on all my notes, I always keep track of the original air date of these things, but I, unless someone brings it up, I never look at that. So I haven't been paying attention. I don't know if there have been any big gaps in this season. Like if there's been a, a, a break between episodes at some point here um, and they felt like they really needed to give everybody a refresher, I'm not sure. But I would say, as I alluded to, I didn't allude to, I outright stated <laughs> earlier (laughs) that uh, this season is cluttered and a bit clumsy. Um, Yeah. A a recap uh, doesn't hurt, especially when it's told by Andrew. Yeah. I think just the way Andrew does it is quite, it's just entertaining, but it also tells us more about Andrew than about the show. (laughs) This Well, that's true. That's true, yeah. but, but it also it also makes fun a little bit of fans. I don't know. It just does a lot of things. It's very funny. It's it's very meta, mm-hmm. um, and I can't quite tell if the show is thumbing its nose at fans who have been complaining about the season up to this point. Because I know I know we were out there. <laughs> Um, or if it's, uh, you know, just running with the joke. Uh, I, I mean, I guess it could be a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B, but, uh, it's all, it's almost a fanfic episode. Oh yeah. There's definitely some aspect of that in it, but it's here that where Andrew says, Oh, Buffy starts making a speech. Yes. And he says, he just slowly backs off and says, these speeches of hers get really boring. Yeah, honest, Even Willow looks bored. Honestly, gentle viewers, these motivating speeches of hers tend to get a little long. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this is so. There's some of those meta aspects of it. Yeah, for sure. And um, 
Yeah, it wasn't even two episodes. It was a, it was the episode immediately following the the seeming rift that had been created between Kennedy and Willow that um, they are just making out all over the place in this episode, yeah. so which that... which Andrew, I mean, I think we could I think you can speculate why, but Andrew just really doesn't pay that much attention to. He's interested in it from a gossipy point of view, like, right. oh, they're together again. But then what he's really interested in is Xander's skill as a window, as a carpenter. Yep, yep. And Xander's awesome, or whatever he says, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I know that's not a ship that ever officially happens, but I, I kind of almost am shipping Andrew and Xander at this point. Well, or when he, he sort of does a counselor type of interview with Xander and Anya and then he replays it and mouths all of Anya's that's account. right that's right so, yeah. <laughs> yeah oh man he doesn't have a crush on Xander at all no no um also he notes the quote sexual tension you could cut with a knife between Spike and Robin <laughs> okay yeah his his awareness his perception of, of what's going on between people is not completely a hundred percent but but i feel like that's an i feel like that's one of the fan things that the show might be acknowledging yes because i i don't remember if i was aware of any spike slash robin (laughs) um you know pairings or whatever in the fandom back then but of course they had to have been there they had to have been probably out there yeah 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 so yeah um I mean, there's so much fun stuff in this. I want to talk about the fun stuff before we get to the... Oh, the, the opening. The opening of this the, episode. The Masterpiece is, Theater. Hysterical. Yeah, you know, but here's the thing I was thinking, though, that the Masterpiece Theater uh, parody is probably completely lost on 99% of people who watch this right. today. I don't... I would bet that... I don't know. Do you remember seeing Alistair Cook? I do. I like, I remember, I was going to say, I remember Masterpiece Theater, but I'm an old, so yeah. I might so, not count. And so am I. Um, but, you know, if I, sh- I show this in class occasionally and, uh, you know, my students who were born in, I don't know, 2002 or something, oh my God. they're just, it um, just I just want to say it continues to shock me. I don't know why, but it continues like I I have a little heart palpitation anytime someone reminds me that people are still being born in the 2000s. It's astounding, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyways, yeah, uh, so, I love yeah. the Masterpiece Theater thing. I don't I don't know even how well that played on its original airing. I mean, obviously. Well, that's, what, that's what I was wondering as I watched it. Uh in preparation for this, I was thinking, yeah. did people even get it in the 2003? Did they? Right. Did this then? Right. Um, um, I so also, I, I also remember. loved the, the classic masterpiece theater setting, but there were comics and star Wars posters all over the place. Yeah. So, so it's definitely, you know, it's in uh, Andrew's imagination. <laughs> right. Which and you definitely know when things start going a little wonky and suddenly, Oh, He's in the bathroom. <laughs> yes. And Anya's great line. Oh my God, I can't get over this. Why can't you just masturbate like the rest of us? <laughs> Anya bringing the sarcasm for, yeah. Anya, I love you. Um, He's great. So this is, this and the next episode 
this and lies my parents told me are are each examples of I'm almost positive in previous episodes I've cited that mm-hmm. um you know this episode that we're talking about is supposedly the last appearance of Jonathan it's the last time we ever see Jonathan in any form on this I, series yeah uh sure. and then here he here he is all over this and once again my research said my research points to this being the final Jonathan and Warren episode that we never see either of them again yeah but i've been lied to before <laughs> now i'm pretty sure it is i i was pretty sure the i was right the other times that i said this is the last time we see Jonathan but i mean we're running out of episodes so it's got to be true sooner or later I'm pretty sure it's the last time because okay. I don't know why he would turn up in any later episodes. Right. I mean, we'd really only see him in uh, Andrew's flashbacks or the first using him to manipulate Andrew. And it seems like Andrew's kind of had his breakthrough. So that might not be, that might not work anymore. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I was just, <laughs> I was just struck by once again, I was like, I, I mean, when I was researching and, and it said, oh, it's the last appearance of uh, Jonathan and Warren. I was like, wait, hold up. I've read that before. <laughs> I've even uh, called this out on the podcast before. Damn it. Um, uh, yeah. And the next episode has another one where I, I know for a fact I've previously called out. This is the last time we ever see Drew. Nope. Obviously uh, not. Obviously no. not. Um. Uh. Anyways, but we get uh, uh, we get all those flashbacks, uh, like the we are as gods, which is yeah, just great. And uh, yeah. I, I I remembered the line. I remembered the line in my plan. We are beltless, but I genuinely could not remember. I had totally forgotten that entire sequence. I forgot that it was just a a, a colorful bit of storytelling from Andrew imagining mm-hmm. himself as the baddest of the three. Yeah. So th- this is, is such a character study for Andrew. This, he's He recasts the whole, not only does he sort of romanticize Buffy as Buffy, a slayer of the vampires. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, that filming of Breakfast where he, you know, it's pretty mundane the way he's actually filming it. But in his mind, you know, <laughs> Buffy is this romantic wind hair blowing in the wind sort of it's almost i don't know what it is it's romance novel kind of romance novel yeah spike is suddenly shirtless yeah you know as it comes into the frame and then there's a random uh potential this beautiful girl i don't know her name (laughs) (laughs) but she eats cereal in a romantic way you know yeah Um, that's his imagination so, and then his imagination of who he was in the trio is like, he was the leader. Warren, wasn't he just the best? <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he romanticizes Warren. And then he's also like, and wasn't Jonathan just a little cutie? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I can't remember if it was this one that had the big board or was that the last one? No. Well, the last one had a big board. It says, don't bring people to a don't keep bringing people in. They'll see the big board. And then he just brings it out. Right. Yeah. But no, um, this is the big board is really 
much more elaborate in this one. Okay, right. Because this is this is the one where he's narrating and he says, uh, he's talking about, you know, the seal of Danzelfar and uh, through um, circumstances, it got opened a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it just sort of got opened a little bit somehow, like he had nothing to do with it. So this is, this is his imaginary version of it, mm-hmm. where he's a big hero, a supervillain, and not responsible, and yet he's not responsible for anything bad. Right. He's it's a comic book version that in his imagination, and this the seal just sort of somehow got open. Right. And of course, and that, by that's why it has to change. Right, and by the end of the episode, he's given at least two alternate, like like alternate explanations if he wants to go with them. He tries to go with them, but he doesn't push right. very hard. Um, including one that he like, he seriously could have stuck with if he wanted to. Like, it, you wouldn't even have to be as, as um, you know, doe-eyed well, or whatever. Sort as... of close to the truth that Warren is the first manipulated him. That kind of thing. No, the, about if you stand on the seal, you can be like it can take you over and make you do things. Yeah. Like he he easily could have imagined that without even really trying to fantasize it too much. Mm-hmm. But he chooses, he, he ultimately chooses not to stick with that. So right. that's good. So because it's me, I have to, I have to raise, even though I did genuinely enjoy all three of these episodes. So this is just me being playing devil's advocate and being the asshole that everybody thinks I am. Um, Go for it. So Buffy lectures Andrew on the the reality and the horror of death and this war that they're in. But not that long before, um, there was a scene that involved a student, a random student's head exploding. Mm-hmm. And it's played for laughs, including a dismissive comedic quip from Buffy. He really should have had that foot massage. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, like... I don't I don't want to be the pedantic jerk that just says, you know, she shouldn't have made that joke and then immediately gone on and talked about how serious death is um, because it was, you know, it was a funny joke. It's the kind of comedy like this whole season is about back to the beginning. That's the kind of comedy we would get would have gotten from the first couple of seasons mm-hmm. of Buffy. Um, but, yeah, I'm just because even when I'm enjoying the show and the character of Buffy, my mind can't avoid noticing things to call her out as being hypocritical for. So is, is that a thing that, that like caught your attention or bugged you or are we just going to dismiss this? Yeah, that did stand out to me. It was, um, well, that whole scene, in fact, uh, I don't know. I mean, in season one, we saw some pretty, well, the first couple of seasons, we saw some pretty bad stuff happening. I mean, the, students attacking the mayor i mean mm-hmm. there's a lot of weapons and people were killed pretty extensively by all the vampires um at the end of season three um actually there's that pretty horrible scene uh at the end of season one really where willow discovers the two guys who've been uh, murdered killed by the vampires and right. the blood everywhere right there's there's a fair amount of carnage 
in the early seasons. Yeah. I mean, and maybe that's... There's maybe nobody explodes, but people don't make light of it that way quite so much. No. I mean, there have, there have absolutely, over the course of the series, been... Uh, there's probably been plenty of jokes, just offhand yeah. references to someone dying. And, and, I mean, that's fair. That's, you know, that's the brand of humor that the show mm-hmm. had. But it just feels like the at this point in the final season, the 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 writers want to have their cake and eat it too. They want this to be yeah. deadly serious and Buffy, you know, gets to get up in everybody's face and tell them, stop having fun. This is a war or whatever. But she also right. gets to, and she gets to like, you know, threaten Andrew and, and uh, just berate him, just browbeat him with how serious all of this is. And that death is not a laughing matter. Just mm-hmm. like minutes after there had been a joke about some random student who died horribly. Yeah. But <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, this is maybe one weakness of season seven is that it starts out with uh, something about like it's going to be about high school again, right? And then they pretty rapidly leave that behind. Man, I loved the first four episodes of this season so much. I was so yeah. I was so prepared to eat crow over uh, how much I had complained about season seven, but. Yeah, I think a lot of people thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if sort of Dawn stepped into Buffy's shoes in a way? Yes. If those two friends of hers became additional Scoobies, that seemed like it would be a cool thing, but that wasn't what they had in mind. Yeah. Okay, well, let's leave all humor behind and talk about the very end of this this episode, because I wasn't expecting to, but... I legit got a little misty watching Andrew's mm-hmm. final reckoning at the end. And it, yeah. it, what might've sold it for me is the fact that like right there on camera, I didn't have to imagine it. I, nobody had to come in and say, well, maybe Buffy didn't really feel that on camera. They literally showed us that mm-hmm. she was never going to hurt him. She was never, she was never going to stab him. Right. And in fact, in the next episode, she, we find out she really feels bad about having to do that. But, mm-hmm. uh, so that combined with how, you know, with Tom Lank, uh, with his pretty great acting there as he, he did a great job as he starts to cry and, and, you know, reckon with what he's done. Yeah. It's a great scene. Mm-hmm. Um, also we have Buffy saying, and I think sincerely here, I don't like having to make a lot of speeches. Mm-hmm. Good people are going to die. Girls, maybe me, mm-hmm. probably you. Right. Um, now, she may be, you know, pressing things a little bit by saying he's probably going to die, but he doesn't, you know, Andrews doesn't have many defenses. Right. And um, and spoiler alert, maybe, I mean, this is a spoiler-heavy podcast, but he doesn't, right? He makes Amazingly. it. Amazingly. To- yeah, he yeah. he makes it all the way through. Okay, he does. I thought I remembered that. I just wanted to be sure. Yeah. Um, so, which could be another reason that I mean I know it's acting, but uh, this Buffy General Buffy is not doesn't seem natural for Buffy, mm-hmm. and that's another reason I think why it's um, why we have trouble with that that aspect of the season. So. Well, that might be why you have trouble. 
with it. Again, I will I will own the fact that um, I've been put off by the character of Buffy so much over the course of the series that I kind of am just always looking for excuses to yeah. not give her the benefit of the doubt. I own it. I admit it. I apologize, but it's just the way it is. Um, well, I accept this is a problem that you have. <laughs> it is. It is something I need to work. I need someone to hold me over a magical seal and threaten my life for me to finally make my yeah. peace with this. I'm sure there are plenty of listeners who are lining up to fill that role right now. But I, I have to, I really impressed though how they, the, you know, the progression of Andrew's character. He spent the whole first part of this episode is him building fantasy worlds and including, you know, as she brings him close, as Buffy brings him closer and closer to the Hellmouth, you know, he cannot admit that he was responsible for Jonathan's death. He, 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 he killed Jonathan not because he was compelled to, not because he was possessed. Yeah. But I mean, he made I, that choice. I think the big part of his, you know, his, I'm just going to use the word redemption, whether it's fair or not. His redemption in that final scene is that he admits to Buffy and himself that he always knew that wasn't really Warren. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's what he admits to the camera in that final mm-hmm. scene. Um, I killed my best friend. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I deserve to live. Too. Yeah. He says, I, I, I'm probably going to die. And that's, that's probably how it should be or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, Making up, making up stories, fiction no longer is satisfying to him. Right. Which is a, again, just looking for, imagining myself as someone who could ever uh, be able to write academic papers or anything. I'm like, what does that say? Like, this is a story that's being written by writers. And mm-hmm. the message here is that stories won't save us <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. So I feel like <laughs> well, I feel like one of you smart people in the WSA has to have done, has to have written a paper about that. Oh, uh, there there are papers about it. In fact, I'm I'm trying to find one that's not coming up here. But um, I think the comment though is that the mutant enemy monster sings, "We are as gods." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, which is that's that's what writers are like. We create true uh, so <laughs> all right um well if you if if you're ready let's move on to the oh here's my cat wants to be on the podcast again well, as she should it's crazy um okay. one of one of mine is asleep here he's he would like to be on the podcast but he, he just is paralyzed with not caring very much <laughs> i wish ember didn't care very much right now um, anyways, yeah, let's move on to the biggie. Let's move on to lies my parents told me. Okay. Which is, if I'm correct, uh, if I remember correctly, it's one of the ones that is frequently held out as the classics, the the great, the genuinely great episodes of the series. Is that true? Mm, um, I don't know. Oh, really? 
Um, Maybe it was just me, because I know coming into season seven, I didn't remember a lot, but I did remember that conversations with dead people and lies my parents told me, I remembered those as being great episodes. Well, I mean, I think it is a good episode. I wrote a paper about it, so I think it's a great episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, But the things I saw in it were maybe a little bit different from what other people see. Oh, all right. Well, let's get into it. So this okay. this this is written by David Fury and Drew Goddard, and right off the top, I I expect that to be a mixed bag when the subject at hand is Spike, because mm-hmm. I, r- rightly or wrongly, I associate David Fury as one of the the mutant enemy writers who is not the biggest Spike fan, and yeah. Drew Goddard as one of the writers who kind of is a Spike fan. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting to see that this episode is written by both of them. Right. Uh, and directed by Fury. So. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if I'd had a little more bit more time, I would have revisited the um, commentary on it, which I think has both of them hmm. on it, on the DVD commentary. But I did not have time. I'm sorry. Um, I, I've, I'm so lazy. I own the full DVD set, and none of these have I revisited on DVD. I've been doing it all Hulu. <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay. Um, but I think this is this is an episode as a whole that I think is actually pretty sympathetic towards Pike. Yes, I know, which is why I was surprised so, that David Fury's name is on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but, but the whole... The season as a whole mm-hmm. is, I would say, moving towards sympathy towards Spike. So take that as you will. Yeah, I will say that is one of the biggest surprises for me on this revisit of season seven is that um, I'd forgotten just like how in Spike's corner Buffy is. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. I just I I didn't remember that being the case. I know by the end of the series she ostensibly gets there when she says "I love you," mm-hmm. um, but uh, I had forgotten that basically for for pretty much most of this season, like she is the one going to bat for Spike, and and that um, just blows right. me away, actually. Yeah, but at the same time, I think this episode proves that spike is correct when he tells his response to her is no you don't oh yeah absolutely yeah so um that's at least you know you don't love me in any way that i could ever take to the bank but thanks for saying (laughs) yeah yeah um so the opening of this the cold open of this is I think it was the cold open, the New York 1977. Yeah. That was a cold open. Yeah. yeah. Um, maybe one of my favorites. I mean, this is, I'm saying this right after storyteller with the whole masterpiece theater thing, but mm-hmm. it might be one of my favorite cold opens because I don't know what it is, but there's something just visually unique about it that it opens mm-hmm. in the pouring rain, looking out over the New York skyline. And then it pans yeah. down to them fighting in the street. Um, it's something about the way that was shot and, I don't know. It it feels genuinely different from just about anything else we've seen in the show. And I would love, I've, I've said this many, many times about the various spinoffs or tie-ins or whatever that I wish we could have gotten. I would watch an entire series about Spike and Nikki Wood in the seventies 
<laughs> that would be great, wouldn't it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Or or even just a series about Nikki Wood in the seventies, and then you know mm-hmm. it's all leading up to Spike showing up and killing her. But um, mm-hmm. I just man, I'm I'm so in the bag for that seventies for that vibe that was going on. And I, I really wish that we could have gotten more with that character. Yes. Yeah. She's a great character and just doesn't get enough. Um, we don't get enough of her, mm-hmm. but it's, so it's great to revisit her. I mean, it's, it's, I think Robin Wood is a really interesting character and to get this flashback. Um, and to, just to see more about his, what's motivating him and, what was going on between Spike and, and uh, Nikki. So it's not just that one fight in the subway that we get in Pool for Love. Right. But that they had some kind of, you know, some kind of relationship, if you want to call it that. You know, it was more than one interaction. Right. He didn't just meet her and kill her, but there was something going on. Yeah, I, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I feel like this episode sort of implies that, like, the scene on the subway happens mm-hmm. not much later after this but i would be i'd be totally happy to ignore that and allow them to fill an entire series with you know the first episode is when they have this fight in the rain and then the yeah. final episode of the series is when they have their fight on the subway yeah yeah um sure. uh spe- can- so about robin wood i I couldn't remember for sure because memories of season seven were super vague, but um, I thought I remembered not being a huge Robin Wood fan. Um, And that has turned out to not be the case, even in an episode like this. And part of that obviously goes to uh, DB Woodside and his fantastic acting. And I think Mm -hmm. the character is interesting and I'm more willing to accept the, his antagonism towards Spike now than perhaps I was on its original airing. But a lot of credit also has to go to the show Lucifer where DB Woodside plays a Menadiel. Oh, that's right. He's so great. In I, that show. I adore him on that show. And man, I will just watch him in anything he does because of that. And so, yeah. yeah. And he's yeah, so I'm... young here. It's, <laughs> he's such a baby here compared to on <laughs> Lucifer. That's true. Yeah, I'm way behind on Lucifer. I need to catch up in season five. Oh, man, that. season five is great. Um, so the, the cold open of this episode is essential. It really casts the, what, the theme of this, this episode, I think. Um, Nikki Wood's phrase or statement to her son, um got to work the mission the mission is what matters yeah that the framework for the whole the whole episode and buffy echoes that same phrase at the end so that's that's who slayers are it's it's something that buffy has done well the, the show has done well since the very beginning and i know i know lots of fiction lots of shows and films and fiction writers use the a similar trick where you set up a line or, or an idea in like the first chapter and it comes back, it pays off at the very end. Buffy does that a lot. And I just, I, I think they're really good at, at, you know, playing that card. And this was yeah. another example where it's the, it's not the closing line of the episode, but, but almost. Yeah. 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 The closing line is something that's, 
is a slightly different theme of the episode that we that we'll get to. I hope um, I'm sure we will. But um, it's this idea that but seems to me that both um, Robin and Spike or Dawn, I guess, are people who've been affected by are affected by um, being parented by or being caught up in the situation where they have a mission that's bigger than anything else, bigger than any relationship. Mm -hmm. Or they're someone that they love is involved with this mission that's bigger. So in real life, it's people, military kids. Right. Same deal. Yeah. Um, missionary kids, which is my background, same deal. Yeah. You know, you might not want to move every three, four years. Um, you might not want to go to boarding school. It's like tough. That's <laughs> yeah. That's what it requires. Um, yeah, I I can't really ding the episode for this because I I genuinely feel this episode is fantastic. But it since you called Dawn out here, it would have been nice if her situation could have been more intimately tied into the theme of this mm -hmm. because yeah, she's been, she was literally born into or literally created into yeah. this situation, not of her making. And she just has to live with the way that she has a, you know, the closest person to her in the entire world has this mission that um, mm -hmm. as of this episode, they admit takes precedence. Right. So, um, and Giles also, his father is a watcher. He either has to be a watcher or what? Right. <laughs> um, he has other ideas, but he, he can't choose that. So that's why, you know, so that's why Giles is willing to go along with Robin Wood and try to convince Buffy that she needs to, um, agree that spike is a danger right so let's talk let's talk about those two sides of the episode then um one are all of the spike flashbacks mm -hmm. uh, william flashbacks i should say well no they become spike flashbacks yeah they're, they're sort of intermingled there for sure yeah um so as someone who uh, I I believe rightly feels like Fool for Love was just an amazing damn episode all the way yeah, around. Great episode. Um, it, I love getting another look at poor William the Bloody, mm -hmm. um, who I believe, although it's never his name is never given on screen. I think maybe the comics confirm or somewhere it's confirmed that his last name is Pratt. Is that correct? I have heard that. Yeah, it's not given on screen. Okay, yeah. So, I just thought of that when his his vampire mother eventually says uh, says something about whining prattle. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, it's either in the comics or in one of the novels. Something yeah, like that. yeah. Um, anyways, what did you think about these flashbacks? This glimpse of that we get of his relate William's relationship to his mother, and then what that turns into. Mm -hmm. um yeah he's um he's definitely you know when the the 
or MacGuffin prokaryote stone or whatever they call it forces him to remember where he first heard that the the song that triggers him. Um, he clearly remembers what his memory of it is that he as a you know grown man is sitting there with his head on his mother's knee while she's singing him this song what he tells the others is oh she sang it to me as a baby right yeah so he doesn't want to acknowledge that he had this kind of overly sort of infantile relationship with his mother right um at the same time um uh, and so I think he acknowledges that his so his mother what he finally acknowledges his mother did love him but maybe too much it was too much she yeah. lies to him about his, his poetry <laughs> it was crap <laughs> yeah yeah I mean uh, yeah we definitely we're definitely going to need to parse the final moments between Spike and and uh, Robin, because um, I loved it, and yeah. I've I've read some other people's comments where they characterize it one way, whereas I watch that and I see a little bit more nuance. But but let's build up to that. Let's build up to that. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, he. I can understand Spike not wanting to tell people everything about his past. Right. But, yeah. Um, well, I, I think the biggest thing that we get, well, not the biggest, but one of the big things that we get from these uh, Spike flashbacks is confirmation. I'm going to call it confirmation of what a lot of us diehard Spike fans had been saying for years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um at least since Fool for Love, uh, that the whole Spike persona was a creation, was a fabrication of William. It's Absolutely. it's an an identity that he created for himself to to sh cover up the fact that he is still the sensitive mama's boy poet. I I think that that would be I would agree with that. Yes. Um, and you know, after 123 years or however however long it's been at that point, uh the the mask has sort of grafted onto him so it's probably easier for him to be spike than it would be for him to stop at this point but mm -hmm. still we see we get a we get some scenes of him post uh transformation with drusilla mm -hmm. again this is marked as drusilla's final episode yeah <laughs> um and even though his voice has slightly deepened he's not talking quite as coquettishly or whatever as he was before um he still is very obviously william he still has william's yeah. attitude he still uses some of william's language he obviously still dotes on his mother even if there is a little tint of darkness to it but he certainly is not spike being turned into a vampire certainly did not turn him into the sid vicious of the vampire world no and I, we even saw that in fall for love did we yeah, I think so. He wasn't instantly Spike-ish. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but so it does take a while, um, and I think 
so yes, I think the spoke, spike persona is a, a creation to some extent. But we also saw in, well, we see it in this episode, we also see in the previous episode, he can, it's part of his vampire nature to really enjoy a good fight. Oh yeah, when he, when he goes and uh, fights the, when he goes to kill the exchange student, <laughs> um, he very clearly uh, relishes the fact that he's got his his armor back which is the leather coat and uh he's you know he's back to being what he would probably call the big bad the big bad is back or whatever Mm -hmm. even though he's got a soul and he's gonna he's going to use his badness uh for good but still yes i mean yeah he was only i don't know how old he was supposed to be when he was turned but i I will will charitably say 20 yeah yeah um so you know he william had 20 something years to develop and he's been creating spike for 120 years so Mm -hmm. i mean obviously spike is a real thing at this point yeah um i do want to ask if you think the dr gull that william offers to call or send the coach for Mm mm-hmm um, I don't know how familiar you are with Jack the Ripper history. Um, not terribly, but I have I have seen some discussions of this that suggest that he might be that that might be the reference. Yeah, Doctor Gull was at at that time in history. He was the royal physician. Yeah. Um, and for years has been an occasional Jack the Ripper suspect. Mm-hmm. So I just thought it was interesting Um, that they apparently can call on jack the ripper to be (laughs) mom's doctor yeah um so he might have been jack the ripper he might have known who jack the ripper was it's like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of possibilities but he was a real doctor at the time and he was was the royal physician right is that yeah yeah he uh he was the he was the physician of the Prince, I'm not going to remember Prince the Prince of Wales yeah. and the and the Queen. So, so yeah, but so what that suggests, I mean, if that's an interesting choice that they made for that, just to toss that in there, suggests these this is a family that's pretty well off and right. Yeah, yeah. It, I I think I would read it as they were well off at one point, and they must still obviously have connections if they could if they felt like they could call on Dr. Gull, but mm-hmm. uh, since his mother's illness and his and Williams probably not doing much to provide for the family, <laughs> maybe they've fallen a little bit out of favor. I don't yeah. know. Unless they're independently wealthy. Or, yeah, true. Um, so, okay. There's that side of it. There's the whole spikes flashback and his history with his mother. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, Oh, well, okay. Before we move on the, no, no, no. I'm sorry. We'll get to that when we get to the Spike and, and Robin stuff at the end. So okay. the other side of it is Giles taking Buffy to the cemetery yeah. to stall her. Right. Um, yeah. So what do you think about that? Um, yes. So Giles is... He buys Robin's story because he thinks that is that's necessary. That's part of the mission for him is 
Spike is a vampire. He's a danger. We have to protect Buffy. I mean, he's he falls back into his uh, watcher um, mode sort of thing, even though he's not officially Buffy's watcher anymore. I mean, the whole speech that he gives her there in the cemetery, even though Buffy keeps saying, look, I, why do I need this now? Mm-hmm. And he keeps talking. He says, let's go back to basics. You have to be willing. What are you willing to sacrifice to save everybody? Yeah, he certainly is trying to act like a watcher, even though he, in that very scene, admits he's technically not her watcher anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's it's an awkward scene. It's There's a little bit of humor. I mean, her beating up on poor vampire Richard. Richard, is, yeah. Is kind of... I'm in the fight of my life. Really? Not you, Richard. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to... I want to applaud this episode for its uh, restraint that they mm-hmm. did not in the, in the previously on package, yeah. they did not include, I don't think now I'm questioning myself. I'm, I'm almost positive. There wasn't a flashback to the whole Giles murdering Ben. Yes. That's an interesting point, isn't it? Because that is absolutely what is being, what I'm reading on Giles's face as Robin is selling him this plan yeah. Uh, and Robin says, you know, I'm talking about doing what has to be done. That very much reminds me of uh, when Giles let just a little bit of Ripper out to deal with mm-hmm. Ben because he knew that Buffy never would. Right. So even the- though even though I'm slightly disgusted at Giles's behavior in this episode, uh-huh. um, first of all, he's not necessarily wrong. Spike, absolutely, since the trigger was still there and the first did say it's not time for Spike yet, it absolutely <laughs> is imperative that they find a way to deactivate that trigger. I, of course, I'm, yeah. I'm just upset at the method they decided to go for, but I feel like it is within character. For, it is. For Giles. There's also something, of course, what the first meant by it's not time for Spike yet. I guess didn't mean what they thought it meant. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, oh, does that is that revealed later on in the season, and I've forgotten. Yes. Oh, okay. All right. So, I um, guess I guess it I guess that still plays out then. But at any rate, they certainly had reason to read it the way that I did, which is sure I can trigger Spike anytime I want, and Giles is exactly. like, it doesn't make sense to you know, it's foolish to imagine that the first would have just conveniently forgotten this this very powerful weapon in his arsenal yeah that's quite reasonable now there is a little uh, another flashback where anya is complaining about spike and says uh he could slaughter a hundred frat boys <laughs> yes yes and then she realizes what she said everybody was looking at her and then she tries to cover it up as by saying oh forgiveness makes us human blah blah yep yep <laughs> Oh, Anya. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we—I I just realized we totally glossed over the fact that uh, I think it was—I think it was in uh, Storyteller that uh, Xander and Anya had one more time. Yes. Which even so, my even my foggy memory knows is not actually one more time. They get no. They get at least one more time that I'm aware of. Yeah. But. So um, Andrew's little counseling session was did more good than he 
Maybe. <laughs> right. Yeah. Not sure that's whose arms he was trying to drive Xander into, but <laughs> probably not. <laughs> but it works. Uh... Yeah. So the uh, the cemetery scene, like I said, I understand it's in it's within character uh, for Giles, but it still kind of turns my stomach a little bit that he is manipulating Buffy this way, yeah. and it breaks my heart a little bit when she realizes it and runs past mm-hmm. him. Uh, but. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about lies my parents told me. I mean, Giles mm-hmm. has been her father figure all this time. Right. And this is where he's lying to her in a huge way. Right. Um, it's during that cemetery scene that we get uh, just, in my notes I said it's just a tiny glimpse of Buffy being possibly maybe self-aware of her righteous cruelty to her friends and family. Mm-hmm. Um I, that's unfair of me. I think it was very clear that and several of the other lines she said, she repeatedly would deflect comments that Giles made by saying, have you heard my speeches? Uh-huh. Uh, you yeah. know, the other day I gave an inspirational speech to the telephone repairman. She is very clearly aware of what she's been doing. Th- this is what I was talking about when I said that this episode yeah. gives me a lot mm-hmm. to think on and possibly redeems the general Buffy stuff maybe a little bit for me because she very clearly is aware of what she's been doing she's very clearly aware of how painful and awkward it's been for her friends and family she even includes andrew in that yeah um yeah i mean that's i I, as i'm saying it out loud i think i'm it's really striking me that this is one of might possibly be one of my favorite buffy has a realization moments (laughs) Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In the entire series. Um, yeah. Um, so, she, again, there's some um, awareness in these three episodes. The writers are aware, and they're showing through things that Buffy says, through things that other characters are saying, that making speeches that Buffy's been doing is not moving things forward. It's not solving the problems mm-hmm. not inspiring people <laughs> right so buffy's got to find another way now this isn't it i was gonna say i think I, it does continue though right <laughs> uh to some extent the... and she's still she's gonna get called out for it some more right yeah um okay so i mean that's that was that's the big thing i wanted to talk about in that cemetery scene anything yeah. else about that that you want to Um, yeah i think it's just sort of giles taking up telling her telling buffy i'm your teacher and giles himself is giving inspirational speeches (laughs) (laughs) it's like come on giles is this what we is this why you're here now it's like uh you know as much as i love giles this is not this seems like a big waste of time and in fact when Buffy finally realizes, oh, wait, why you're stalling me. You're keeping me away from something more important that's happening. Yeah. And that's a big realis- realization for her. Now, to be fair, Giles is better at his inspirational speeches <laughs> than uh, yeah. Buffy is. But yeah, I, yeah, I get it. Um, all right. So let's talk about the Spike and Robin showdown. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on this one? Um, yeah, this is, a, this is hard to watch in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it really struck me this time 
how Wood starts this fight by triggering Spike because he says, I don't want to kill you. I want to kill the monster that took my mother away from me. And then he plays the song. Yeah, that is a cause uh, Spike to vamp out. That's a fascinating thing because it's been something that all of the characters on this show and the writers, I would argue, have struggled with for the entire series is the idea that the the monster and the man aren't necessarily the same mm-hmm. person. I mean, I know they clung to that belief with Angel and Angel really tries to live that, <laughs> you know, really tries to cling to that. But um, it was just interesting that um, Robin Wood, of all people, uh, sort of gave, paid some lip service to that idea. Yeah, he definitely does. He he sees a distinction between Spike that he perceives as a human in some way and the vampire Spike that he sees as the monster that killed his mother. Mm -hmm. Um, And not just killed his mother, but took her away from him. That's what he's really mad about. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing, and maybe you want to say something here, but that really struck me about the scene is that um, the song also triggers a flashback to this scene between William and Drew and uh, sorry, the flashback where uh, with William's mother is a vampire. Right. So her cruel words are interspersed with uh, Robin Wood's physical blows. Right. In fact, I, I read it as, or intercut, I should say. I read it as that was actually why Spike was getting his ass handed to him. So exactly, <laughs> so yeah. He like the fight he was having wasn't necessarily even with Wood at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's sort of why you can't fight back the way he should be able to. Right. Um, I mean, not to say that Wood isn't a an amazing fighter. He clearly is, but yes. As we see before the end of the episode, Spike could hand him his teeth if he chose to. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. When when Robin finally gets Spike on the ground, he takes the coat back. Mm-hmm. And when Spike gets ready to take to get himself together and fight back, he retrieves the coat. Right. The coat. Yeah. Uh, yeah the coat is obviously an object of power, at least mm-hmm. thematically, symbolically. Um, like I called it, his armor earlier. Yeah. Right. Um. So. The, the big thing, well, first of all, the fight is just, I think, I think the scene is well done. The scene between Robin and Spike. Mm-hmm. I liked the, even though I kind of wanted Spike to just be able to sense, even in the darkness, that he was suddenly in a room surrounded by crosses. Mm-hmm. Um, when the lights came up and he was like, what the bloody hell? And <laughs> I, just his whole attitude there. I, I liked that attitude. And I liked how menacing, how casually menacing Wood was as he was queuing up the song. And putting yeah. on the, his his weapons of war or whatever. So that whole scene, and then the fight choreography was all pretty good. And mm-hmm. um, DB Woodside, I I particularly I kind of got chills at his performance when he was beating Spike and saying, "Is this how it was when you when you fought her, when you hurt her, when you kill, when you snapped her neck or whatever?" And he yeah. screamed it at him. So much anger, yeah, yeah. really powerful, yeah. But the real the real juice here <laughs> mm-hmm. to to get to the real juice we have to go back to the 
Uh, I think the scripts name her, his mother, as Anne, but the show never does. Right. Yeah, I've, I've seen that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Vampire Anne and Vampire William. Yes. Uh, we, we need to talk about this scene. Yeah, it's a it's a really gruesome scene. <laughs> it is. It's <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I've had many, I and many, many people, I'm hardly the only one, uh, have had plenty of words to say about the notion that Spike, when Spike was turned into a vampire, he clearly may, retained elements of his humanity, mm-hmm. um, perhaps more so than any other vampire we've ever seen. Uh, mm-hmm. So when his mother, uh, when he un- unleashes the demon in her, okay, let's talk about how he rationalizes all this. When he finally, yes. when he finally cures himself of the trigger and he comes back and he really starts fighting with Robin. First of all, I, I, oh, I'm just over the moon. I adore the fight choreography in that moment because we see, I mean, Spike lands a couple of punches, but after that he starts uh, just blocking Robin's attacks and doing uh-huh. open palm chest strikes just to force Robin back. Oh. That is. That is so. That is such an amazing example. That is such an amazing unspoken demonstration of who Spike is in that moment. Because he very easily uh, could just rip Robin's head off at that point. But that's not what he's trying to do. He wants to. He wants to fight him with words right now. He doesn't want to <laughs> cripple him or whatever. Such a good point. Yes. Um. But the real the real meat here is when he starts saying, you know. Uh, my mother loved me. She loved me with all her heart. It was the demon that said those terrible things. Mm-hmm. That that might be true, but uh, coming from someone like Spike, who is arguably the most human vampire we've ever seen, I just wonder if you read that as some sort of rationalization on his part, or do you think... Do you have the same view that he does? Did you think that was just the vampire Anne, or was it channeling unspoken things that she had in her from her human life well it could be rationalization but one thing that struck me as interesting is that when um william vampire william kills stakes his vampire mother he does it in human face Oh, good point. Good point. So I think that's got to be deliberate, of course. So I think that is to make that distinction, I think, that you know, Vampire William realizes, you know, which, as you say, he's always been the most human of the vampires. Um, he realizes that, okay, it, his however misguided his plan for making his mother a vampire he thought he would heal her of her illness Mm -hmm. and then they'd continue their a little bit overly relationship throughout eternity um he never saw his mother as a human being or you know as an individual he just saw her as oh my mother she's so nice she takes care of me you know and so okay maybe you know that was his mistake but uh, there is, we've seen plenty of examples 
people who are turned into vampires and become, you know, all inhibitions are gone. Mm-hmm. They, that's, you can call that the demon if you want to, you can call it whatever you want to, but, um, any kind of altruism is gone. Anything, any kind of inhibitions are gone. So I think he's probably right. And so it is kind of a rationalization, but he's also saying my human mother, as my mother, when she was human, she did love me. I turned her into a vampire and the vampire, most vampires are incapable of love. Mm-hmm. So I certainly, I certainly have my read on this, but just, just to put it out there, do you think what she was, she was implying some Oedipal stuff yeah, uh, and there. It's true. That's, that's probably real, but not, not in this super, not in the extreme, extremely sexualized way that she, she implies. Cause I think it was not, you know, you can, you can tell from what William was like. He would never have gone that far right? or, or even, even what imagined that right. consciously because all of that stuff is subconscious normally. For yeah. People. To, to but. clarify, I'm not a scholar, so I might, I may be misspeaking here, but I'm pretty sure that uh, the notion of Oedipal complex doesn't necessarily or always mean just strictly sexual. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it has other, it has other laying layers or, mm-hmm. or degrees to it, but yeah. Um, so I personally, I mean, the series has been inconsistent about this over the years, but I personally feel that all vampires, even the cruelest, even the most monstrous and inhuman, just the act of becoming a vampire is a blending of demonic nature and human nature. And so mm-hmm. there's always some, bit of the original host left in there yeah. mm-hmm. uh, some just keep more of it than others so yeah. what my read on it is that his 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 human mother probably did as as all of us as human beings do from time to time harbor you know resentments or frustrations or <laughs> right whatever but it didn't doesn't mean that she didn't truly genuinely love spike so mm-hmm. So it gets to the point where you can acknowledge that, that Mm -hmm. she really did love him. And just the vampire version of her was extremely, you know, was just freed of any inhibition or real caring and would say whatever. I mean, I guess, I guess this brings us back to the edible complex notion, but the, the revelation that this was the relationship that he had with his mother. And this is how it all went down. Like you, you very, uh, cleverly pointed out that he was in human face when he staked her. Um, I will also add that she shifted to human face as she was dusting and he audibly gasped at that. Yeah. Uh, that clearly shook him. Um, mm-hmm. Just the whole revelation of how that, how that all went down um, retroactively sort of colors how you think of Spike in previous seasons and some of the things that he's done and specifically, I could say that the relationship that he developed with Drew, who is pointed out in this very episode, is mm-hmm. also like a mother to him, technically. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, maybe there's the demonic half of William feeding feeding on that Oedipal impulse. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, possibly. Anyways. 
his comment. So what I referenced earlier when I said I've read some comments or reviews from people about this episode, there are a number of people I saw that read, um, that either complained that Spike made this comment or believed it, like fully believed what he was saying was that um, Robbins would never, Robbins' mother didn't love him. She only loved the mission or whatever. But I don't think that's actually what Spike was saying. That's not what he says. He, he, he clearly says, like Robin says, my mother loved me. And Spike doesn't deny that. He doesn't say mm-hmm. she didn't. He says, but not enough to quit though, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, and he really, he really uses what, I mean, we've been told many times that Spike has, uh, has, you know, away with slayers. He, he's got, he, he knows how slayers work apparently. Um, and it's been played for laughs through much of like season six, probably. But, mm-hmm. um, I think his, his, his little dialogue here shows us that, yeah, he genuinely, he gets a, he has a sense for slayers. Like he knows what's going on with them. Yes. Yeah. So we're, Wood wants to kill Spike because he thinks Spike is, he says earlier in that conversation, he says, you took my childhood. You took her away. She was all I had. She was my world. And Spike's response is, and you weren't hers. Doesn't Mm -hmm. that piss you off? Yeah. Wood, shut up. You didn't know her. And Spike, as you said, I know Slayers. Um. No matter how many people they've got around them, they fight alone. Life of the chosen one. The rest of us be damned. Your mother was no different. So the monster that took uh, Nikki away was her vocation, her mission. This is something I wrote in my essay. Um, Her vocation, her mission, that was the real monster that took her away. Spike happened, was the instrument. Yeah. But she was always going to be leaving Robin behind in some way. Which is which is another reason why I wish that we could have more stories of Nikki Wood. Um, like, I'd love to see... Uh, I think they want us to believe that young Robin was four years old at that point. And mm-hmm. so I don't know if she was a slayer. I, I, I'm just imagining that she was a slayer before she got pregnant before she had wood so uh, yeah, it's hard to say but probably yeah it's like um the the thing that's interesting in that opening scene if we go back to that is that she starts walking away with him and Ro- little robin runs back and picks up her stake yeah <laughs> and so this is a common pattern with people whose uh whose parents have a mission is that they embrace that as well yeah which is exactly what robin goes on to do is he's raised by the watcher and you know becomes takes up that mission himself in a way yeah but in a twisted way because you know he thinks that vampires are the real monsters (laughs) but it's really it's the mission it's the mission (laughs) Man, the show's come a long way from the first season, where the where the show really just wanted us to believe it was actually all about the mission. <laughs> and again, but this is again, this is the whole thing of season seven. Like, 
chosen the chosen one being a chosen one is is the problem and that's the problem that buffy's trying to solve here god bless you we're going to talk more <laughs> in episode 64 <laughs> um so yeah i guess unless you want to oh we didn't mention the fact that this is a crossover episode yes yes it is uh, it crosses over with angel episode 415 orpheus which mm-hmm. i again my memory is that that is one of the amazing fantastic standout episodes of that series yes it is yeah although i think i think what i read is that there was a mix-up in scheduling and orpheus actually aired before this one before this episode that could well be so so that's why dvds are streaming is good because you can right order right so so viewers actually saw willow show up in la before she gets the call in sunnydale <laughs> whoops but eh, what are you gonna do yeah um but that's why it's so good that you know willow really had this sort of uh power surge moment in the previous episode where it's just okay i can use my powers yes yeah i hadn't even thought of that yeah yeah because if she was still full-on existential crisis mode uh she wouldn't be able to do what she does over an angel exactly yeah man sometimes the writers know what they're doing amazing (laughs) um all right uh is there anything else we want to say about the like the very end the whole giles okay the very end. So this is, um, again, this is a moment. This is really sad in a it's, way. It's a heartbreaking scene. It is. I mean, it's so brief, but there's Giles sort of trying to justify what happened. But, you know, Buffy's had it. She's not, te- she's not having it. Um, you know, I think you've taught me everything I need to know. I mean, ah, heartbreaking. I mean, just the, the, yeah. The closing the but, door in his face. That's, yeah, closing the door in his face, but it's absolutely, it has to happen. Yeah, there aren't a lot of times where I side with Buffy in those moments where she, you know, gets upset at Giles for something he's done or or whatever. This was one of them. Even, yeah. though, even though I acknowledge that Giles wasn't 100% wrong in mm-hmm. wanting to do what he did, I hate the method that he attempted and it was mm-hmm. deceitful and unfair and um, hurtful. And I absolutely agree with Buffy in her, in that moment right there. What I yeah. don't remember at all, I have zero, zero memory of how her relationship with Giles plays out from here on. I know he makes it to the, like, I, like I know he obviously he makes, makes it because he's in the comics. He gets his own comic at one point, but, right. um, but, and and I know that by the end, Everybody who's left, spoiler alert, not everybody is left, but everybody who is left um, is pretty much all happy and kumbaya, as Anya would say. Um, But I have zero memory of what Giles's relationship with Buffy is like in the intervening episodes from now to the end. Um, (laughs) it's kind of, it's kind of a little bit foggy to me as well. Um, well, I think he, Giles is kind of in and out. He's been kind of in and out this whole time. Yeah. Um, because he's rounding up potentials and doing things, but he is definitely there in the last couple episodes because there's that great scene where he's playing Dungeons and Dragons. 
Oh, I forgot about that. Um, yeah. I think he, maybe because of this scene, he has a lesser role. I mean, that is sad. I know that uh, some of this stuff was demanded by circumstance, that um, mm-hmm. he was not either willing to be available or just wasn't available to film as steadily as he had been previously. And so yeah, he could only do so many episodes, but, but he was definitely there for the last, the final two episodes for sure. Yeah. Um, all right. So listeners, the miracle of these three episodes are the, the layers of miracle. A, I liked all of them, uh, possibly (laughs) even loved all of them. Uh, but most importantly, while also beating me over the head with how much I hate General Buffy, it might possibly have turned <laughs> have turned me. It might possibly have gotten me over the hill here with the General Buffy thing. So okay. again, fingers crossed that I can hold on to this this glow that I have for the remaining episodes. But Okay, well there's only five episodes left. Yeah. And um, they, most of them have Nathan Fillion in so. Oh, he's about to show up. Yeah. Yeah. So Dale is joining me for the next two podcasts. Um, okay. I finally, I don't, I, I have no idea why it's taken so long. I don't know which one of us was, <laughs> was uh, resistant, but, you know, Dale should have been on this show from the beginning. <laughs> and she's finally, yeah. she's finally coming in here right at the end. Um, okay. so good. the next time Elizabeth, the next time that you and I shall meet will be for the finale. Okay. I'm looking forward to that. That will be so. So I, you will be joining a panel of guests on the final episode I'm just yeah. revealing all of this to the listeners. Now the, the finale episode will be discussing just the finale. It'll be only that episode and it will be myself. I don't know why I'm, calling this out now <laughs> it'll be myself obviously elizabeth uh arlo who's been on a few episodes yeah. and, who, and who famously is responsible for this damn podcast uh and nikki stafford who oh, was great. who was the very first guest on the podcast and has to be here at the very end so yes definitely okay that should be good all right so thank you elizabeth for being here at the end of all things Almost the end of all things. Almost the end. Almost the end of all things. Um, okay, great. Well, this has been fun to discuss these episodes. Thanks for inviting me again. There's your cat. Oh, yeah. I heard him. Wait, where? I heard where? a little meow, and mine's snoring, yeah. so it wasn't mine. Well, I don't know where he went, but <laughs> you're somewhere. He's <laughs> throwing his voice. Um, yeah. All right, so you want to let the people know how they can find you online? Um, yes, I'm on Twitter at E.L. Rambo. That's it. That's it. (laughs) That's, that's pretty much it. Um, I have some essays about, um, season seven in, um, the, uh, Slayage Journal, the Journal of the Whedon Studies Association. Mm -hmm. So if you want to see what I thought about these episodes and other episodes in season seven. And also, of course, since I said at the top of the show, you need no introduction. I did not mention your, your book, 
Well, I did mention it, but <laughs> yeah, I, I edited a book with uh, James South and Lynn Edwards called Buffy Goes Dark essays on the final two, two seasons of Buffy on te- television. Yes. So. I'm holding it right here in my hot little hands. Um, yeah. So there will be links in the show notes for everybody that wants to track down that book. And I'll, I'll also put the WSA, the Slayage and the Whedon Studies Association links in there as well. Um, so thank you again, Elizabeth, until we, until we meet again. Okay. Uh, and thank you. Thank you all at home for listening. You can find links to this and all of the past episodes at the website cons with dead, um, or subscribe to the show on Apple podcasts. And while you're there, please rate us or write us a review. Uh, that really helps us find new listeners. If you've got questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to join the conversation, you can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at conswithdead or reach out to us on Facebook at Conversations with Dead People. As I've already revealed, I don't know why I even have to say it here, but next episode, Professor Whedon-y author and glittery, glor- glittery glorious, that's hard, that's a tongue twister. I didn't even realize I'd written that. Glittery and glorious sloth lover Dale Guffey. Uh, is finally making it to the graveyard to help us make sense of episodes 718 Dirty Girls and 719 Empty Places. So until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. Early one morning As the sun was rising I heard a maiden singing The valley Don't deceive me